Chapter Four, Part One of the Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. In the front parlor of the Cresslers' house, a little company was gathered: Laura Dearborn and Page, Mrs. Wessels, Mrs. Cressler, and young Miss Gretry, an awkward, plain-faced girl of about nineteen, dressed extravagantly in a décolleté gown of blue silk. Curtis Jadwin and Cressler himself stood by the open fireplace smoking. Landry Court fidgeted on the sofa, pretending to listen to the Gretry girl, who told an interminable story of a visit to some wealthy relative who had a country seat in Wisconsin, and who raised fancy poultry. She possessed, it appeared, three thousand hens, Brahma, Faverol, Udang, Dorkings, even peacocks, and tame quails. Sheldon Corthell, in a dinner coat, an unlighted cigarette between his fingers, discussed the spring exhibit of watercolors with Laura and Mrs. Cressler, Page listening with languid interest. Aunt West turned the leaves of a family album, counting the number of photographs of Mrs. Cressler which it contained. Black coffee had just been served. It was the occasion of the third rehearsal for the play which was to be given for the benefit of the hospital ward of Jadwin's mission children, and Mrs. Cressler had invited the members of the company for dinner. Just now everyone awaited the arrival of the coach, Monsieur Gerardy, who was always late. To my notion, observed Corthell, the watercolor that pretends to be anything more than a sketch oversteps its intended limits. The elaborated watercolor, I contend, must be judged by the same standards as an oil painting. And if that is so, why not have the oil painting at once? And with all that, if you please, not an egg on the place for breakfast, declared the Gretry girl in her thin voice. She was constrained, embarrassed. Of all those present, she was the only one to mistake the character of the gathering and appear in formal costume but one forgave isabel gretry such lapses as these invariably she did the wrong thing invariably she was out of place in the matter of inadvertent speech an awkward accident the wrong toilette for all her nineteen years she yet remained the hoyden young undeveloped and clumsy ever an egg and three thousand hens in the runs she continued think of that the plymouth rocks had the pip and the others, my lads, I, I don't know, they just didn't lay. Ought to tickle the soles of their feet, declared Landry with profound gravity. Tickle their feet? Best thing in the world for hens that don't lay. It sort of stirs them up. Oh, everyone knows that. Fancy now, I'll write to Aunt Alice tomorrow. Cressler clipped the tip of a fresh cigar and turning to Curtis Jadwin remarked, i understand that laycraft alone lost nearly fifteen thousand he referred to jadwin's deal in may wheat the consummation of which had been effected the previous week squarely in the midst of the morning session on the day following the short sale of jadwin's million of bushels had exploded the news of the intended action of the french chamber amid a tremendous clamour the price fell the bulls were panic-stricken laycraft the redoubtable was overwhelmed at the very start the porteous trio heroically attempted to shoulder the wheat but the load was too much they as well gave ground and bereft of their support may wheat 
which had opened at ninety-three and five-eighths to ninety-two and a half, broke with the very first attack to ninety-two, hung there for a moment, then dropped again to ninety-one and a half, then to ninety-one. Then, in a prolonged shudder of weakness, sank steadily down by quarters to ninety, to eighty-nine, and at last a final collapse touched eighty-eight cents. At that figure Jadwin began to cover. There was danger that the buying of so large a lot might bring about a rally in the price, but Gretry, a consummate master of pit tactics, kept his orders scattered and bought gradually, taking some two or three days to accumulate the grain. Jadwin's luck, the never-failing guardian of the golden wings, seemed to have the affair under immediate supervision, and reports of timely rains in the wheat belt kept the price inert while the trade was being closed. In the end, the deal was brilliantly successful. And Gretry was still chuckling over the setback to the Porteous gang. Exactly the amount of his friend's profits Jadwin did not know. As for himself, he had received from Gretry a check for $50,000, every cent of which was net profit. "'I'm not going to congratulate you,' continued Cressler, but as far as that's concerned, I would rather you had lost than won, if it would have kept you out of the pit for good. You're cocky now. I know. Good Lord, don't I know. I had my share of it. I know how a man gets drawn into this speculating game. Charlie, this wasn't speculating, interrupted Jadwin. It was a certainty. It was found money. If I had known a certain piece of real estate was going to appreciate in value, I would have bought it, wouldn't I? all the worse, if it made that seem easy and sure to you. Do you know, he asked suddenly, do you know that Laycraft has gone to keep books for a manufacturing concern out in Dubuque? Jadwin pulled his mustache. He was looking at Laura Dearborn over the heads of Landry and the Gretry girl. Hmm. I don't suppose he's getting measured for a private yacht, he murmured. Then he continued, pulling his mustache vigorously, Charlie, upon my word, what a beautiful, what beautiful hair that girl has. Laura was wearing it very high that evening, the shining black coils transfixed by a strange hand-cut ivory comb that had been her grandmother's. She was dressed in black taffeta, with a single great cabbage rose pinned to her shoulder. She sat very straight in her chair, one hand upon her slender hip, her head a little to one side, listening attentively to Corthell. By this time the household of the former rectory was running smoothly. Everything was in place. The Dearborns were settled, and the routine had begun. Her first month in her new surroundings had been to Laura an unbroken series of little delights. For formal social distractions she had but little taste. She left those to Page, who, as soon as Lent was over, promptly became involved in a bewildering round of teas, dancing clubs, dinners, and theater parties. Mrs. Wessels was her chaperone, and the little middle-aged lady found the satisfaction of a belated youth in conveying her pretty niece to the various functions that occupied her time. Each Friday night saw her in the gallery of a certain smart dancing school of the South Side, where she watched Paige dance her way from the first waltz to the last figure of the German. 
She counted the couples carefully, and on the way home was always able to say how the attendance of that particular evening compared with that of the former occasion, and also to inform Laura how many times Paige had danced with the same young man. Laura herself was more serious. She had begun a course of reading, no novels, but solemn works, full of allusions to man and destiny which she underlined and annotated. Twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays, she took a French lesson. Corthell managed to enlist the good services of Mrs. Wessels and escorted her to numerous piano and cello recitals, to lectures, to concerts. He even succeeded in achieving the consecration of a specified afternoon once a week, spent in his studio in the Fine Arts Building on the lakefront, where he read to them, St. Agnes Eve, Sordello, The Light of Asia, poems which, with their inversions, obscurities, and astonishing arabesques of rhetoric, left Aunt Wes bewildered, breathless, all but stupefied. Laura found these readings charming. The studio was beautiful, lofty, the light dim, the sound of Corthell's voice returned from the thick hangings of velvet and tapestry in a subdued manner. The air was full of the odor of pastilles. Laura could not fail to be impressed with the artist's tact, his delicacy. In words, he never referred to their conversation in the foyer of the auditorium. Only by some unexplained subtlety of attitude he managed to convey to her the distinct impression that he loved her always, that he was patient, waiting for some indefinite, unexpressed development. Landry Court called upon her as often as she would allow. Once he had prevailed upon her and Page to accompany him to the matinee to see a comic opera. He had pronounced it bully, unable to see that Laura evinced only a mild interest in the performance. On each propitious occasion he had made love to her extravagantly. He continually protested his profound respect with a volubility and earnestness that was quite uncalled for. But, meanwhile, the situation had speedily become more complicated by the entrance upon the scene of an unexpected personage. This was Curtis Jadwin. It was impossible to deny the fact that Jay was in love with Mrs. Cressler's protégé. The businessman had none of Corthell's talent for significant reticence, none of his tact and older than she, a man of the world accustomed to deal with situations with unswerving directness, he, unlike Landry Court, was not in the least afraid of her. From the very first she found herself upon the defensive. Jadwin was aggressive, assertive, and his addresses had all the persistence and vehemence of veritable attack. Landry she could manage with the lifting of a finger. Corthell disturbed her only upon those rare occasions when he made love to her, but Jadwin gave her no time to so much as think of finesse. She was not even allowed to choose her own time and place for fencing, and to parry his invasion upon these intimate personal grounds which she pleased herself to keep secluded, called upon her every feminine art of procrastination and strategy. He contrived to meet her everywhere. He impressed Mrs. Cressler as auxiliary into his campaign, and a series of rencontres followed one another with astonishing rapidity. 
Now it was another opera party, now a box at McVicker's, now a dinner, or more often a drive through Lincoln Park behind Jadwin's trotters. He even had the Cresslers and Laura over to his mission Sunday school for the Easter festival, an occasion of which Laura carried away a confused recollection of enormous canvas mottoes that looked more like campaign banners than texts from the scriptures, sheaves of calla lilies, imitation bells of tinfoil, revival hymns, vociferated with deafening vehemence from seven hundred distended mouths, and through it all the disagreeable smell of poverty, the odor of uncleanliness that mingled strangely with the perfume of the lilies and the aromatic whiffs from the festoons of evergreen. Thus the first month of her new life had passed. Laura did not trouble herself to look very far into the future. She was too much amused with her emancipation from the narrow horizon of her New England environment. She did not concern herself about consequences. Things would go on for themselves, and consequences developed without effort on her part. She never asked herself whether or not she was in love with any of the three men who strove for her favor. She was quite sure she was not ready yet to be married. There was even something distasteful in the idea of marriage. She liked Landry Court immensely. She found the afternoons in Corthill's studio delightful. She loved the rides in the park behind Jadwin's horses. She had no desire that any one of these affairs should exclude the other two. She wished nothing to be consummated. As for love, she never let slip an occasion to shock Aunt Wess by declaring, I love nobody. I shall never marry. Page, prim, with great parades of her ideas of good form, declared between her pursed lips that her sister was a flirt. But this was not so. Laura never maneuvered with her lovers, nor intrigued to keep from any one of them knowledge of her companionship with the other two. So upon such occasions as this, when all three found themselves face to face, she remained unperturbed. At last, toward half-past eight, Monsieur Girardi arrived. All through the winter amateur plays had been in great favor and Gerardy had become, in a sense, a fad. He was in great demand. Consequently, he gave himself airs. His method was that of severity. He posed as a taskmaster, relentless, never pleased, hustling the amateur actors about without ceremony, scolding and browbeating. He was a small, excitable man, who wore a frock coat much too small for him, a flowing purple cravat drawn through a finger-ring, and enormous cuffs set off with huge buttons of Mexican onyx. In his lapel was an inevitable carnation, dried, shrunken, and lamentable. He was redolent of perfume, and spoke of himself as an artist. He caused it to be understood that in the intervals of coaching society plays, he gave his attention to the painting of landscapes. Corthell feigned to ignore his very existence. The playbook in his hand, Monsieur Girardy clicked his heels in the middle of the floor and punctiliously saluted everyone present, bowing only from his shoulders, his head dropping forward as if propelled by successive dislocations of the vertebrae of his neck. He explained the cause of his delay. His English was without accent, 
but at times suddenly entangled itself in curious Gallic constructions. "'Then I propose we begin at once,' he announced. "'The second act tonight, then, if we have time, the third act, from the book. And I expect the second act to be letter-perfect, letter-perfect. There is nothing there but that.' He held up his hand, as if to refuse to consider the least dissension. "'There is nothing but that, no other thing.' All but Corthell listened attentively. The artist, however, turning his back, had continued to talk to Laura without lowering his tone, and all through Monsieur Gerardy's exhortation his voice had made itself heard. "'Management of light and shade, color scheme, effects of composition.' Monsieur Gerardy's eye glinted in his direction. He struck his playbook sharply into the palm of his hand. "'Come, come!' he cried. "'No more nonsense.' now we leave the girls alone and get to work here is the scene mademoiselle gritry if i derange you he cleared a space at the end of the parlor pulling the chairs about be attentive now here he placed a chair at his right with a flourish as though planting a banner is the porch of lord glendale's country house ah murmured landry winking solemnly at page the chair is the porch of the house and here shouted monsieur gerardy glaring at him and slamming down another chair is a rustic bench and practicable table set for breakfast page began to giggle behind her playbook gerardy his nostrils expanded gave her his back the older people who were not to take part jadwin the cresslers and aunt wess retired to a far corner mrs cressler declaring that they would constitute the audience on stage vociferated monsieur girardy perspiring from his exertions with the furniture marion enters timid and hesitating l c come who's marion mademoiselle gritry if you please and for the love of god remember your crossings Shh, he cried waving his arms at the others a little silence if you please now marion Isabel Gretry, holding her playbook at her side, one finger marking the place, essayed an entrance with the words, Ah, the old home once more. See the clamoring roses have... But Monsieur Girardy, suddenly compressing his lips as if in a heroic effort to repress his emotion, flung himself into a chair, turning his back and crossing his legs violently. Miss Gretry stopped, very much disturbed, gazing perplexedly at the coach's heaving shoulders there was a strained silence then isn't isn't that right as if with the words she had touched a spring monsieur girardy bounded to his feet grand god is that left centre where you have made the entrance in fine i ask you a little is that left centre you have come in by the rustic bench and practicable table set for breakfast a fine sight on the night of the performance that marion climbs over the rustic breakfast and practicable over the rustic bench and practicable table <laughs> to make the entrance still holding the playbook he clapped his hands with elaborate sarcasm ah yes good business that that will bring down the house meanwhile the gretry girl turned again from left centre ah the old home again see stop 
thundered monsieur gerardy is that what you call timid and hesitating once more those lines no no it is not it at all more of slowness more of here watch me he made the entrance with laborious exaggeration of effect dragging one foot after another clutching at the palings of an imaginary fence while pitching his voice at a feeble falsetto he quavered ah the old hobo once more see like that he cried straightening up now then we try that entrance again don't come on too quick after the curtain attention i clap my hands for the curtain and count three he backed away and tucking the playbook under his arm struck his palms together now one two three but this time isabel gretry in remembering her business confused her stage directions once more ah the old home left centre interrupted the coach in a tone of long-suffering patience she paused bewildered and believing that she had spoken her lines too abruptly began again see the clambering left centre ah the old home Monsieur Girardi settled himself deliberately in his chair and, resting his head upon one hand, closed his eyes. His manner was that of Galileo, under torture, declaring, Still it moves. Left center. Oh, oh yes, <laughs> I forgot. Monsieur Girardi apostrophized the chandelier with mirthless humor. Oh, ha, 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 she forgot still another time marion tried the entrance and as she came on monsieur gerardy made vigorous signals to page exclaiming in a hoarse whisper lady mary ready in a minute you come on remember the cue meanwhile marion had continued see the clamouring vines roses the clamouring rose vines roses pure and simple see the clamouring roses pure and mademoiselle gretry will you do me the extreme obligation to bound yourself by the lines of the book i thought you said go on go on is it god possible to be this stupid lady mary ready see the clambering roses have wrapped the old stones in a loving embrace the birds build in the same old nests well well lady mary where are you you enter from the porch i'm waiting for my cue protested page my cue is are there none that will remember me say whispered landry coming up behind page it would look bully if you could come out leading a greyhound ah so mademoiselle gretry cried monsieur gerardy you left out the cue he became painfully polite give the speech once more if you please a dog would look bully on the stage whispered landry and i know where i could get one where a friend of mine he's got a beauty blue gray they become suddenly aware of portentous silence the coach his arms folded was gazing at page with tightened lips none who will remember me he burst out at last three times she gave it page hurried upon the scene with the words ah oh, another glorious morning the vines are drenched in dew then raising her voice and turning toward the house arthur arthur warned the coach that's you mr corthell ready well then mademoiselle gretry you have something to say there i can't say it murmured the gretry girl her handkerchief to her face what now continue 
your lines are i must not be seen here it would betray all then conceal yourself in the arbor continue speak the line it is the cue of arthur i can't mumbled the girl behind her handkerchief can't why then i i have the nosebleed upon the instant monsieur girardet quite lost his temper he turned away one hand to his head rolling his eyes as if in mute appeal to heaven then whirling about shook his playbook at the unfortunate marion crying out furiously ah it lacked but that you ought to understand at last that when one rehearses for a play one does not have the nosebleed it is not decent miss gretry retired precipitately and laura came forward to say that she would read marion's lines no no cried monsieur gerardy you ah, they were unlike you you are obliging but it does not suffice i am insulted the others astonished gathered about the coach they labored to explain miss gretry had intended no slight in fact she was often taken that way she was excited nervous but monsieur gerardy was not to be placated no no he knew what was due a gentleman he closed his eyes and raised his eyebrows to his very hair murmuring superbly that he was offended he had but one phrase in answer to all their explanations one does not permit oneself to bleed at the nose during rehearsal laura began to feel a certain resentment the unfortunate gretry girl had gone away in tears what with the embarrassment of the wrong gown the brow beating and the nosebleed she was not far from hysterics she had retired to the dining-room with mrs cressler and from time to time the sounds of her distress made themselves heard laura believed it quite time to interfere after all who was this gerardy person to give himself such airs poor miss gretry was to blame for nothing she fixed the little frenchman with a direct glance and page who caught a glimpse of her face recognized the grand manner and whispered to landry he'd better look out he's gone just about as far as laura will allow it is not convenient vociferated the coach it is not permissible i am offended monsieur gerardy said laura we will say nothing more about it if you please there was a silence monsieur gerardy had pretended not to hear he breathed loud through his nose and page hastened to observe that anyhow marion was not on in the next scenes then abruptly and resuming his normal expression monsieur gerardy said let us proceed it advances nothing to lose time come lady mary and arthur ready end of chapter four part one